where you are in this, if you're a first, second time, regular attender, a member, whatever. How you heard about us just kind of helps us know uh, what's working and what isn't. And then on the back, we have some next steps that uh, you can check as far as taking those next steps. And then uh, a place to get some additional information. So if you're interested in baptism or becoming a member or some of the other things on there, you can just check those. And then finally, a spot for prayer requests. Uh, we pray for these things multiple times a week and uh, would be happy and proud uh, and honored to pray for whatever it is that you've got going on. If uh, it's something that is a little on the personal side and you want it to remain uh, private, then just check that little area and it will only go to the pastors. So um, give you just a couple of minutes to fill that out and then we'll get started uh, with our next installment of James. So, is there anybody here who hasn't had the experience of being in a situation 
where you say something and the moment that the last word comes out of your mouth, you are grasping to try to pull them all back. <laughs> Every day, wow. Gosh, I seem to have struck a nerve here, or more like a gold mine. Um, well, I heard the story once of a man named Bill and a woman named Susan. Now, Bill and Susan were members of the same health club. Oh, actually, I have a representation. There's Bill and Susan. <laughs> They're members of the same health club, and because they tended to come to the club at the same time uh, every week, um, they, and, and they typically would use sort of the same exercise equipment. So because th of that, they sort of got to know one another. And, and they became friends. And while they were there, you know, probably on the treadmill or something, they would just talk um, about all kinds of things. But eventually, their conversation turned to matters of faith. Now, um, Susan was a very regular and faithful church attender. Bill, not so much. He had gone to church as a child, but, you know, really hadn't continued as an adult. And so, uh, upon finding that out, Susan is inviting him to come to her church. And so, she keeps inviting him, and he doesn't come. Until, one Sunday... Susan and her husband are walking into the, uh, the entryway of the church, and there's Bill. And he's standing you know, near the entrance, talking with a number of her friends who were on duty kind of as greeters that day. So she sees him, and so she and her husband walk up to this whole group, and she greets him, and she's like, Hi, Bill, I'm so glad you're here. And when Bill saw her, he got this big smile on his face, and he goes, Hi, Susan, I almost didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> Amazing the difference that one adjective can make. Well, realizing at once what had just popped out of his mouth, he attempted to make it better, and he said this, No, what I meant was, it's nice to see you when you're not all hot and sweaty. I think Bill missed the entire service trying to explain to Susan's husband what he, that he had meant to say with your regular clothes on uh, as opposed to the workout clothes that she always wore to the gym. Well, such is the power of the tongue, right? And that is what uh, James is now going to sort of tell us that uh, it can't be tamed. So let's pray. So Father, I just uh, lift this message up before you. I pray that you would um, that you would speak through me, that my words would be your words, my thoughts would be your thoughts. So we just ask your presence now into these words. Lift them up before you, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in a uh, a run through the book of James, and so today we're going to look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And as you might have guessed by now, uh, it's the uh, somewhat well-known taming of the tongue uh, part of James. So we're going to go into that in some detail. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, James chapter 3, starting at verse 1. If not, we have it up on the screen for you. 
And it begins as this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So James kind of kicks into this whole subject of uh, the tongue by initially referencing teachers, okay? And as you might well know, teachers played a very important role in the early church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, Paul singles them out as exercising one of the three most prominent ministries in the church. He talks about apostles, prophets, and teachers in that particular chapter. And so, somewhat comparable, I guess, to a Jewish rabbi, uh, the teacher in the early church was entrusted with the task of transmitting Christian doctrine. Okay? And so, there was, the, there was just kind of a natural authority, and, and in some cases, prestige, that sort of came along with that because this was kind of someone who was in the know, perhaps. You'd look at it that way. Um, now, that's even more um, the case when you have a society such as this one where there really weren't that many people um, who could read, right? Um, and there were people in lower statuses that or lower classes that didn't have much of an opportunity to advance any further than what they were. And so it isn't a surprise that Christians would be attracted to this teaching ministry for all the reasons I've outlined. And so uh, probably some, el some measure of concern over Christians just sort of flocking to this teaching ministry is sort of behind what uh, James is talking about here because um, he's essentially offering a warning to those who are teaching. Uh, so James points out that the teacher places himself in greater danger of judgment because the main tool of his ministry is the part of the body that is the most difficult to control, and that's the tongue, right? And really, past his initial um, remarks on teachers, um, this concern is enlarged to the body in, in general, uh, to everyone. Human beings stumble in a lot of ways, and so I think it's interesting that he uses the term we in this because he's clearly putting himself in the same category as other people who make these slips of the tongue. So he's not holding himself above that uh, in any way. And so in general, we kind of tend to show our imperfection and our sinfulness uh, by committing sins of the tongue. If you really think about it. But, on the other hand, we can show our maturity by being able to control the tongue and what it says. And there's really two truths that sort of encourage this. Well, first of all, as he's laid out already, we can end up being judged more strictly because of what we say. Um, and I would think that the prospect of an extensive examination by God might encourage us to use our tongues well and rightly. And secondly, if you can control your tongue, it proves that you can control the rest of yourself, right? That's what, what he's saying. If you can bring that tongue under control, then you can control the whole body. All right, so those are the first couple of verses. Next to verse, starting at verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, 
we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So these two analogies that he's using here, controlling horses with bits and ships with rudders, these were very common illustrations in the uh, ancient Mediterranean uh, world, primarily because everybody except the most illiterate of peasants would have understood what they were talking about. They understood th how the bit and bridle worked as well as the rudder of a ship. So it was an easy one for listeners to understand. And, you know, we, we think about the fact that the bit is actually a very small part of all of the harnessing that, that goes on a horse. But it gives the rider the potential to make the horse go wherever they want it to. Same thing with the rudder. You know, in a ship, whether it's in violent winds and storms and so forth, the captain or pilot of the ship can use that to, to steer the ship wherever he wants it to go. And again, compared to the size of the ship, the rudder is very small. I was really, once I actually looked at this, I was really surprised to see I, how tiny rudders typically are, um, given what they're intended to do. And so, verse 5, the first part of verse 5 there, is really just kind of a, a summarization of these kinds of illustrations. He says, you know, just like um, the bit for the horse, the rudder for the ship, the tongue itself is small in relationship to the rest of the body, but it has the potential to either to achieve great results one way or the other, either for good or for bad, right? And so it can stir up violence or it can promote peace. It can crush a spirit or it can soothe someone who's discouraged. Starting at 5b, how great a forest f is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So, verse 5 shows us that if you have an uncontrolled tongue, it's the source of great destruction, or can be the source of great destruction. Little flame causes a huge fire. Small couple of words said at the wrong time or in the wrong tone uh, can cause a lot of pain uh, to one or, or more people. And what he's saying is that it essentially can sort of ruin the entire body. Um, tongue can basically produce three results. It, it corrupts the whole person. It's a source of pollution for your entire personality. I mean, how many of us know folks that um, really just never have anything good to say? It's always negative, right? And, and they're just, they're no, absolutely no fun to be around because uh, you just don't, after a while, it's like, okay, that's enough. Second, it, it sets the whole course of a life on fire, right? Life in this case can refer to birth, to origin, or even to existence. That's what he's talking about. And third, he's talking about how Satan has influence over the tongue. He says it was set on fire by hell itself. So, um, 
that's verse uh, 6. So verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So it talks about four classifications of earthly animals that men have subdued or tamed. Uh, animals which could walk, fly, crawl, or swim. Um, now, truth be told, I don't know that anyone has ever tamed a rhinoceros um, or an alligator, for that matter. Uh, but if you've been to the circus, you will see that there have been many kinds of wild animals that have been tamed, or at least brought under human control, if not tamed. Um, and even though humans can do that, they're unable to control their own tongue. It's a restless evil, James says, always busy creating more mischief. In the Bible's accurate picture of the tongue's destructive potential, however, offers us no excuse for just going ahead and, and agreeing, well, you know, that's just the way it is. That's the way I'm just going to have to live with the fact that um, I'm just always going to be speaking, you know, somehow <laughs> evilly. Um, we've got to commit our tongues, just like the rest of us, to the power of God. And let him use it to build up and strengthen other people rather than constantly be tearing them down. Verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So here we get this positive and negative use of the tongue. So the positive involves the praise of God. We just did that here this morning. Right? Essentially, the highest function of human speech would be to give praise to God. But then the negative involves cursing human beings who are what? Made in the image and likeness of God. And so, a little bit of inconsistency there, wouldn't you say? You can't consistently bless God and then turn around and curse those who were made in God's image and likeness. Because if you do that, you're effectively cursing God. He's the object in, in both cases, of both expressions. And so it, it's an outrageous double standard that we fall prey to, I think, all too easily. And then he wraps it up by saying this. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So here he's showing us that nature is very consistent, right? He's asking a question, and in both cases the answer is an assumed no. And this is, a, again, something that would have been very familiar to those who, were, who lived in the area of Palestine. Um, you can imagine the Dead Sea has got a, a, an extremely high salt content to it. In fact, I've heard that it is, is almost impossible to submerge yourself in the Dead Sea because the salt content is so high, you just pop right back up to the surface. Um, 
And so there were a lot of salty springs that sort of were fed from that that were all around the area. Um, but then if you go a little bit n further north from the Dead Sea, you can find springs emitting fresh water. But the point is the spring can only produce one or the other. It's never going to produce both. And you know, obviously the farmers in that area, they produced all kinds of things, figs, olives, grapes, in great abundance. But James is emphasizing that the tree can only produce one kind of fruit. You don't go to a grapevine and look for figs. Or you don't get olives from a fig tree. Nature is consistent, but our tongues have really never provided that kind of model of consistency. Colossians 4, 6 really provides sort of a fitting conclusion for this. It says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And just the way, you know, a printed word can inflame passions and tempers, spoken words do this exact same thing. Paul calls us to use our tongues positively, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so, if you're seeking to control your tongue, we've got to admit to God that it's a weakness. To seek his help and place a relentless guard on our tongues. God's grace can enable us to use our tongues and our words for blessing and encouraging others. So that's the text. So what do we take away from this? I think it's sort of summed up in this. Control of your tongue demonstrates spiritual maturity. Control of your tongue demonstrates spiritual maturity. So how do you gain control of your tongue? That's really the question, I guess. We know we need to. We know it's hard. James has told us that. What can we do to actually make that happen? Well, I think there's a few things that you can, can think about doing. The first is speak words of wisdom and justice. You gain control of your tongue by speaking words of wisdom and justice. This comes from Psalm 3730. And it says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Right? And so it's a characteristic of a mature person to speak wise things. In other words, don't go around uttering a bunch of foolish nonsense. And I think if we really examine what it is we talk about on a regular basis, we would probably have to admit that there's a lot of foolish nonsense that we, um, we spend time talking about. The person, the mature person, her conversation is serious and earnest and true and pure. His words are faithful, kind, and just, right? That's what it means to speak words of wisdom. And the thing is, because this concept is a part of human conduct, it's one of the reasons why God will bless that person with prosperity and with length of days. And here's, here's the suggestion I would say. Ask the Holy Spirit. If you want wisdom, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit as our counselor. And so before you just open your mouth and engage, 
maybe it ought to not be a bad idea to spend a few minutes saying, all right, Lord, give me the words to say before I jump in here and say something that I shouldn't. So, words of wisdom and justice. Secondly, you gain control of your tongue by speaking words of healing. This comes from Proverbs 12.8. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. See, you're foolish if you end up going around and hurting other people with your reckless words, but it's the wise person who actually chooses to heal with words rather than hurt. Um, and I think uh, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of times stuff we say, we don't really intend harm to come from it. But as we just talked about, if you just blurt out the first thing that comes to mind, there could be consequences from that. Didn't recognize you with your clothes on. And the verb from which reckless is derived is really used to describe the hasty words that cost Moses his entrance to the land of Canaan. And as I said, even though you may not intend for there to be damage, the damage can be as searing as a sword thrust. Disgraceful or shameful words grieve the spirits of those to whom they're spoken. Slanderous words, like a sword, wound the reputation of those of whom they're uttered, perhaps incurably. Whisperings and evil conjecture, basically gossip. Like a sword, divide and cut to pieces the bonds of love and friendship and separate those that have been dearest to each other. How many people have gone through that? You know, where something you said got back to somebody else and it just really hurt them? Spiritually, though, a mature person has the chance to come along afterwards and use his tongue to help heal the wound. This is difficult to do. I just I ran into this just yesterday. I have a situation that's going on right now where uh, some of my closest and dearest friends, uh, they were both pastors. He continues to pastor a church. She has resigned from the church, partly as a result of all this. And they are under attack by someone who's in the church. And there is a chance that I am going to have to spend a considerable amount of time with this person. I made the comment yesterday that it would take everything I had not to punch this person square in the face when I saw him. <laughs> because these are some of the oldest friends and dearest friends I have in Richmond. And some of the, the greatest people that I've ever known. And this is, it's like you're messing with my family now. But I had to repent because I know that isn't what God wants me to do. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do if this situation does present itself. Um, perhaps my final point will be what I end up choosing. But nonetheless, the tongue is there and, and should be used for healing, not for 
vindictiveness or getting even or all of the things that we tend to like to use it for. I think thirdly, you can gain control of your tongue by speaking words of truth. Proverbs 12:19 says, Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. I, in doing research for this, I came across something in Matthew Henry's commentary, and I'm just going to read it verbatim as he wrote it, because I just thought it was good enough to just let it stand on its own. And Matthew Henry said this about this particular verse. Be it observed to the honor of truth, that sacred thing, that if truth be spoken, it will hold good, and whoever may be disobliged by it and angry at it, yet will keep its ground. Great is the truth and will prevail. What is true will always be true. We may abide by it and need not fear being disproved or put to shame. Keep in mind Matthew wrote a while ago, so the language is a little stilted. Then he goes on to say that if truth be denied, yet in time it will transpire. A lying tongue that puts false colors upon things is but for a moment. The lie will be disproved. The liar, when he comes to be examined, will be found in several stories and not consistent with himself as he is that speaks truth. And when he is found in a lie, he cannot gain his point, nor will he afterwards be credited. Truth may be eclipsed, but it will come to light. Those, therefore, that make a lie their refuge will find it a refuge of lies. I just thought that was extremely profound and uh, good advice in encouraging us to only speak words of truth. And then finally, <laughs> you can gain control of your tongue by not speaking. <laughs> and there's... Proverbs 17:28 says, "Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent." Now there's a modern variation of this that uh, that's fairly popular, and it says, "Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt." <laughs> In other words, silence is golden. And like I said, this is sometimes the best course of action to take, right? You know, it's your mom, I'm sure, probably told you at some point, if you can't say something nice about someone, then don't say anything at all. Well, I think Jesus would probably say the same thing. And that's essentially what James is talking about here, too. You know, Thomas Carlyle was a poet, and he said this, Silence is the element in which great things fashion themselves together that at length they may emerge, full-formed and majestic, into the daylight of life, which they are thenceforth to rule. In other words, what he's saying is engage your brain before engaging your tongue. Right? Let the thought gain some momentum, let it gain some context, let it gain some power before you just blurt out the first thing that comes out of your mouth. I think you'd be well served by that. In fact, they, um, if, 
you've ever been in sales, you understand that silence is probably the best weapon salesman has. Because people hate silence. And so if you ask someone for the order and then you just don't say anything else and just wait, the other person will inevitably say something first. Right? And so that's a very fairly basic sales technique that you're taught early on is just use silence as a means of, uh, of really getting the order. Engage your brain before engaging your tongue. Well, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin uh, wrote a book called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And he's lectured throughout the country on the powerful impact uh, that both positive and negative words can have. And when he, when he lectures, he oftentimes does this. He'll ask his audience, can you go 24 hours without saying an unkind word about or to another person? And he said invariably a number of his listeners raise their hand and say, yeah, I can do that. Um, others laugh, and quite a few will call out, nope, can't do it. Well, Telushkin responds this thusly. Those who can't answer yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you're addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you're addicted to nicotine. And if you can't go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you've lost control over your tongue. So, would anybody care to guess what our faith in action point is for today? <laughs> Pardon me, what? Everything that you wanted to say about other people? Um, no, <laughs> I don't think that would be helpful. So if you, I, I forget that there are people that listen to this online. So the faith in action point is, for the next week, keep track of how many times you catch yourself saying an unkind word about or to another person. Okay, if that's too much, try it for 24 hours. <laughs> see, if you can, if, see if you can take the rabbi's challenge. And... Uh, can you go 24 hours with saying, without saying an unkind word about or to another person? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, probably one of the best ways to handle this is um, to rely on your relationship with Jesus to help in that regard. That if we will offer up those things and ask for his help, we have the ability to overcome in so many different things. And so I would just invite now, if there's anybody that does not have that relationship, that would want it, as we uh, kind of go into worship here in, our, in the final uh, moments of the second part of our service, that you would 
that you would choose to make that decision. I'd like to lead you in just a little prayer. You don't have to say this out loud, but in your hearts, silently, just lift this prayer up. If God is speaking to you now and it's time to make that decision. Oh God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I'm willing to turn from them right now, right here. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is your son. And I believe with all my heart that he died for my sins and that you raised him to eternal life. I right now receive Jesus as my Savior and I receive him as my Lord. From this moment on, I want to follow him in the fellowship of the church. Guide my life and help me to do your will. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.